something kind of weird tonight, admittedly, uh, and that is we're going to cover God is love, the, another attribute of God, the love of God, and we're also going to do our conclusion tonight, but we are still meeting next week. Um, but what happened was I, I really wanted us to end in July and not go an extra week into August, and next week the, the attribute that we're doing is definitely going to take the whole time period, and uh, and it's kind of a good one to end on anyway, but I, I didn't want to, to end the class because we've been here for a long time. I mean, we did, I think, 18 attributes, and that doesn't include the introduction and then the three or four weeks we did on natural theology. And, you know, so we've been going for over 20 weeks on this. And so it just felt like appropriate to give some kind of concluding remark and just kind of talk about the class as a whole. So it's going to feel kind of weird because we're basically going to wrap everything up tonight but then we're still going to meet next Wednesday for one more Wednesday. And then I'll kind of give you a heads up of what we're doing after that. Um, so, so that's what is in store. So we'll probably do the love of God for half the time and then, or maybe three-fourths of the time, and then we can spend a little bit of time just kind of talking about the class. So I just want to share one thought I had about the class as a whole, and then you can say anything you want about the love of God or the class in general. That's the game plan today. So we'll go into it. God is love. Another... The, the big word for this is omni-benevolent. Benevolent means love. Omni is all. God is all-loving. And uh, we have a very clear verse, scripture on this from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And what we really want to emphasize here is this is, um, you know, throughout the history of the Christian church, this little, these three little words right here has been taken on by Christian philosophers at an incredibly deep level. Because, you know, we're, we're so familiar with this verse, we don't, we say it so quickly, we don't really realize just how complicated of a little term this is. Um, you would never ever describe somebody you know as love itself. Unless you were just like writing a poem and you were trying to be poetic and but you would never in seriousness say This person is is love like if you want to know what love is it's this person Rather we view love as something outside of ourselves that we embody and so we describe people as being loving My wife is a very loving person My wife has a lot of love Or you might even describe someone as lovely uh, but this is saying, this is not so much describing God with an adjective as much as it is identifying God with a noun. It's not saying that God is loving, although he is. It's not saying that God is lovely, although he is. It's saying God is love. Like, what is love? It's God. The definition of love and the definition of God are the same thing. <laughs> God is love. And so the way that Christians have come to describe this, and this is the case, by the way, with all of God's attributes, not just love, is that it, God's love is essential to him. And I know we've said this a million times in this class, but we're going to say it again. So love is not this thing outside of God that he adds to himself. It's not like love is this abstract thing that God says, I want to be like that. I, I look in the universe and, oh, there's this love stuff out there. I like that. I want to be like that. Love is not something outside of God that describes God, but it's actually part of his essential being. God's very nature is the definition of love. Uh, and this is not the case with us. If I were to die tomorrow, love would still exist. Right? So love is not who I am. I can be a loving person, and I can try to be more loving, but love is not dependent upon my existence for itself to exist. If God were to, now this is crazy talk, but if God were to, hypothetically speaking, die and cease to exist, love would be gone. There'd be no such thing as love. Right? So love is part of God's essential nature. For us, we, we would refer to as love as an accident of our nature. That's not, you know, and, by the, and that's a philosophical term, accident. When we use the word accident in philosophy, it doesn't mean incidental. I didn't mean for that to happen. That's not what the word means. Uh, but an accident is something that is tied to us, but not dependent upon who we are. We've given this example before. So I am a human being, and I have blonde hair. Therefore, human beings have blonde hair. Therefore, if you don't have blonde hair... You're not a human being. 
You see how silly that is? So I'm a human being, but blonde hair is not essential to human nature. It's an accident of human nature. Some humans can have blonde hair, but it's not essential to humanity. You can be a human and not have it, right? So that's what we mean by an accident. It goes with the nature, but it's not essential to it. You could lose it or gain it. It wouldn't really matter. God's love is not an accident of his character. It's not something on top of who he is. It is who he is. He is love. What are some of the consequences? Because we can affirm that, but what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that God's love is going to be the same as the rest of him. So God, for example, is impassable, which means that he doesn't have passions, which means that he doesn't have emotions. So that means that God's love is impassable, meaning it's a perfection, not a passion. In other words, the more simple way to say this is God's love is not an emotion like love is for us. For us, love is primarily an emotion, although even in Christian circles, there's a big debate over what love is. Is love a verb? Is it a feeling? Is it both? Christians kind of debate. But regardless, typically when we talk about love, we talk about something we feel, something we feel towards something else or towards someone else. Love for us is an emotion. But for God, love is not an emotion because emotions are accidents. They're not essential, right? Because your emotions can change. So your emotions are not essential to who you are. Your emotion changes, but you still stay who you are. So God's love is not an emotion. If it's essential to him, then it can't change because he can't change. And so that's what leads us to the next point, that it's immutable. It cannot change. And this means that God cannot have more love tomorrow than he has today. And it means he can't have less love tomorrow than he has today. God's love has been exactly as it is always and forever. There's been no alteration to it. And philosophy, we call this movement. And by the way, we, we use this term even outside of philosophical contexts, right? So for example, if you see a really powerful movie, you might say, that really moved me or someone does something really nice, that really moved me. What do you mean when it says it moved you? It means it, it changed my emotion. It, 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 it created an emotion within me. God has no movement in that sense. You can't change God's emotions. He's not affected by the outside like that. Now, the fact that God's love is exactly the same always does not mean that he can't affect it unequally. Here's what I mean by that. Just because God's loving character doesn't change does not mean that everyone on earth will always experience the love of God to the same degree. So even though his love is unchanging, he can reveal it to us or he can, uh, what's a, a non-technical term, he can pour out love upon us to different degrees. So some people can receive more love from God, some people can receive less love from God, uh, but that's, that's God choosing to effect his love rather than actually changing his love. This isn't a perfect analogy, but imagine if I had an infinite amount of Reese's candy, right? I have a big tub filled with an endless supply of Reese's candy. So my, my, my supply of Reese's is endless and it never changes. But that doesn't mean that I can't give Bill two of them and then I'll give Bonnie three of them. So my, my recess is unchanging, it's eternal and infinite, but you might experience it to different degrees. Um, and so the benefit of this immutable that God's love does not decrease or increase is, is that this is why we talk about why we cannot cause God's love. This is why it makes no sense within the Christian paradigm to say that God loves you because you did something, because you earned it. That would be assuming that God's love is an emotion like ours, and at one point in time, he didn't love you, and then you did this awesome thing, and then he fell in love with you. So you moved God. You changed God's heart towards you, uh, but God's love is not an emotion. He can't do that. So what that means is that God has always loved you before you did anything good or bad. And no matter how many bad things you do, it doesn't change God's love for you. And no matter how many good things you do, it doesn't increase God's love for you because his love is not an emotion and because his love is immutable. And we see this in scripture, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? God didn't fall in love with us because we were such good people. God didn't give us the best gift ever, Jesus Christ, because we earned it. 
We were sinners. We, we, we not only did not deserve the love of God, but we actually demerited it. It's, it's not even that we were neutral and God had no reason to love us and no, re, and, every, and no reason to hate us. He actually had every reason in the world not to love us, and yet, nonetheless, He still loved us. So this is proof in and of itself that God's love is not something that we cause or create. In other words, God's going to love you whether you like it or not. We see it also in 1 John 4, 10 and verse 19. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God loved you before you loved him. We love because he first loved us. As a matter of fact, not only do we not cause God's love, but it's on the contrary. God causes our love. We're born against God. We're born with enmity towards God. And then we experience his infinite love. And then that causes us to love him. So our love is moved towards God, but God's love is never moved towards us. He has always loved us infinitely and perfectly. And so again, uh, God is infinite and eternal. God's love is who God is. Therefore, his love is infinite and eternal. And we saw this in our Ephesians series in, in church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ loves us so much that it actually surpasses your knowledge. You're not able to know it. It's too, it's too much for you to know. It's infinite. This is also what this metaphor here, breadth, length, height, and depth means. He's describing God's love by saying it's it, it's, it's height itself. How, how tall does, how high does Christ's love go? It's height itself. It's a never-ending height. It's a never-ending width. It's a never-ending depth. It's, it's all around us forever, and it's unchanging, and it's beyond your ability to know it, right? So God is infinite. God is love. Therefore, God's love is infinite. And so that begs the question, like, what is love? And so when you hear the word love, like I said, to some degree, it's hard for us to define because there's always going to be a little different with God than with us. But generally speaking, when you hear the word love, what comes to your mind? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love, baby? Well, we think it's an action. Think it's an action? Okay, good. Yeah, like so many of these attributes, I think the reason there's silence is because it's one of those things that's like we know it when we hear it, but it's hard to define. As a matter of fact, in a lot of the books that I have, one of the things that they really go at great lengths to do is to try to define this, the differences between love, goodness, and mercy. Because they're kind of all the same. Um, so it's really hard to give a real accurate definition of love. Here are some of the best that I found. Uh, Francis Turretin, one of my favorite theologians, he says, from goodness flows love by which God communicates himself to the creature and wills to unite himself with and do good to it. So what he's saying is that God's love is, uh, flows from God's goodness. So his goodness is sort of the primary attribute. And if you're good, then you're going to love. So God is good and therefore he loves. And the way he's defining this love is that God communicates himself to us and wills to unite himself with us and to do good to us. So kind of like what Bill's saying, he's basically defining love as an action. Whenever God does good things to you, it's an act of love. And the primary good thing he does is by actually joining himself to you, by coming to you. If God cannot love you from a distance, he, he has to come and commune with you in some degree in order to love you. And we see this, you know, Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17, God is not far from any one of us. We see in Romans chapter 1, God has made his presence known and everybody knows that God exists. So God has condescended to the creature whether they like it or not, whether they admit it or not, and he, and he does good things to the creature and that is what we call love. He communes with and does good to them. That's how he's defining love. Whether it's true or not, like I said, we could nitpick this stuff. This, I'm just giving you some options. Another theologian I really like, Louis Burkhoff, he gave kind of two definitions. He says, love is when the goodness of God is exercised toward his creatures. So basically, when goodness, this is what Bill is saying, it's an action, when goodness manifests, we call that love. He says, love is that perfection of God by which he is eternally moved to self-communication. And uh, he, he, he clarifies in his 
book that he doesn't mean move the way he's using this sort of and, and analogically is what we call or metaphorically. God's not actually moved. But it's hard to talk about God without using human language. That's why the Bible uses it. But in other words, he's, he's essentially saying that, again, love, like what Turton was saying, whenever God communicates to us, whether that's speaking or doing something good, any kind of connection we have to God is an act of love. So I'm not sure how helpful that is, um, but I think that the, the general gist of it is that anytime we experience the goodness of God, that's what we call love. Uh, there are four objects in Scripture of, of God's love, meaning God, essentially you could boil down what God loves into four categories. There, God has a love for four things and four things only. He loves creatures, he loves men, he loves the elect, he loves himself. And this is um, an order. He has degrees of love, and that's what we said. His love is infinite, but the created world experiences it differently. He loves creatures, but he loves something more than creatures, and that's people. And then among people, he loves some people more than other people, and that's the elect. And then there's one thing he loves more than all of creation itself, and it is himself. God loves himself more than anything. And so we're going to just briefly look at this. So let's just see, does God love creatures? One example of this is Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And what are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now I know this doesn't use the word love, but if we're understanding love as receiving acts of goodness from God, then God is doing good things to his creatures. He feeds his birds and he clothes his lilies. And we're, that's how we're defining love, when God does good things to you. So clearly God loves the sparrows. He loves the birds. He loves the fields. He, he loves his creation. We also see this in a commandment. Well, not a commandment, but in a proverb, Proverbs chapter 12 Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. There's something of God's morality, God's character that is revealed in this. In other words, God is saying for human beings, we are required to love our animals. We're required to treat them well. Animal, animal abuse is a sin. Animal abuse goes against God's character and nature. So if, if God says righteousness means loving beasts and he is righteous, what do you deduce from that? He loves the beasts. He loves the animals. God loves the animals. So God has a love for beasts. God has a love for his creatures. But notice how in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, yes, God loves creatures, but he's using God's love for the creatures to make a point that are you not of more value than they? He loves us more. God does not love you the same way he loves a monkey. You, you have a unique, privileged love as a human being that monkeys and birds and fish do not have. And this is why it's not inconsistent for us to treat animals different than we treat humans. There is a level of love that we show towards all creatures. Um, you know, even like, I would even say like, this is why we Christians shouldn't be involved in like random acts of, of violence towards nature. Like, it's okay to cut down a tree to build a house. It's okay to cut down a tree because it's a danger. It's okay to cut down a tree to make space for... But if you just, you know what, I'm bored. I want to go burn that, that field over there. I, I think that's a bad thing to do. Just, just randomly, let's just pollute the ocean for the heck of it. That's bad. So we do have a general love towards creatures, but it is not the same towards humans, right? Uh, I'll never forget, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but one of the big dramas all over the internet was uh, at some zoo, a young child, a toddler, uh, a mom had a bunch of kids and she lost one of her kids and he went into a gorilla cage. And there was a gorilla like actually carrying him around. And so the zookeeper shot the gorilla. They killed him. And it was this big outrage. How dare you kill the gorilla? It's the kids, it's the mom's fault. It's not the gorilla's fault. And, and my response is I would, I would slaughter a million gorillas before I ever let one child get harmed. I would cut the throat of a hundred animals every single day if it meant protecting even one child. Yes, if a child gets into a gorilla cage, you kill the gorilla instantly. 
as fast as you can because we are far more important than the beasts. But it doesn't mean that God has no love for the animals. He does love the animals. You shouldn't just kill gorillas for fun, but you should kill them to protect innocent life, right? And that's because God loves mankind. Um, Matthew 5, this is in the same sermon. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is, a, is perfect. So two things to note here. We are clearly being called to love all people, right? Anyone who's a human being, you should love them. Whether they're your friend or your enemy, you should love them. And we are being told that when we do that, we are acting like God. So what does that tell you about God? God loves all people. Whether they love him or not, whether they're his friend or his enemy, he loves them. And the second thing we learn is how do we know that God loves evil people? And the text tells us because he does good things to them. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It, there's a reason that all of the people who hate God don't just, God doesn't just kill them right away. Why, does, why, why do so many evil people get awesome jobs, promotions over Christians? Why is it that there's so many evil people out there who have such comfortable, grand, marvelous lives? It's, it's because God loves them. And he showers blessings upon them because he loves them, even though they're his enemy. And this is why we are called to love our enemies, to bless them, because that's what God does. So we have in here this implicit but somewhat explicit revelation that our Heavenly Father loves all people, both his friends and his enemies. But what we see is that while God loves all people, and he loves them more than creatures, even among people, he has a special love. He doesn't love all people the same way. God has a special love for the elect, and he treats the elect with a privileged position that he does not treat the non-elect. Uh, first verse I want to call your attention to, this is Romans chapter 8. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it begins by saying God loved us and that this love makes us conquerors, but not all people are conquerors. Some people will fail at the end of life and be judged. And that means that they did not have this kind of love. He makes that more clear. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And then here's the key. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So there's an, a love of God that, we, that is unbreakable. There's a love of God that cannot be broken, that cannot be overcome, but this is the love that's only found in Jesus Christ. If someone does not believe in Jesus Christ, they do not have this love. They don't have it. This is a love that only comes through Jesus. So believers are loved differently and more specially than non-believers. And, and, and in case you think that's not explicit enough, then we have an explicit text. Romans 9.13, quoting from the Old Testament, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And in the context of Romans 9, it goes on to talk about how Jacob was elect and Esau was non-elect. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here's what some people will try to say. They'll say, well, you can't take the word hated too literally. In other words, uh, God doesn't hate people the way we hate people. And that's true. What people will tell you is that this is a word that's hard to translate because it's a word of comparison. So it's not just saying like, I hate this person no matter what. It's saying compared to something else, my feelings for them is much lower. And how do we know that this word means that? Well, because Jesus in the Gospels tells us, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brothers, you cannot be my disciples. Right? But how do we square that with Jesus we just got done Jesus telling us to hate nobody, to love our friends and our enemies. Well, because when the Bible talks about hate, sometimes it's a, a word of comparison. We don't, we don't hate our brothers and sisters. We love them. But compared to God, relative to the love we're supposed to have for Christ, our love for our family should look like hate <laughs> because our love for God is just so much better. So essentially what 
is being said here is not so much like God hates Esau the way you hate, you know, evil people. It's, sim- it's simply saying that God had a special, unique love for Jacob that Esau did not have. So all the attempts to say, well, hate doesn't actually really mean hate. Well, that, that's true, but it's missing the point. The point is, is God does not have the same expression of love for all people equally. Clearly, there's a difference in Jacob and Esau and their relationship to God. And God says, I loved one, I hated the other. So we cannot conclude that God loves all people equally. That's whether, I know we are oftentimes born and raised in the Christian world and we're told that, but it's just biblically not the case. And these are just two examples I plucked. There, there are lots of examples we could give where God has a special, unique love for the elect, and that's why he does special, unique things for them that he doesn't do for the non-elect. God has a special love for his people. Uh, and then lastly, God loves himself. Um, I, I can't, to, to go into all the scriptures would take a lot of time, so we're not going to go into them. But I just want to give a couple things. Um, this is implied in Genesis 1, when God created us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, livestock, etc., etc. So here we have, why are humans more important than animals, right? Like here, we are specifically told humans have a privileged place on earth. The animals are not allowed to have dominion over us. We get to have dominion over them. That's why it's okay for you to have a little puppy dog that you put a collar on and feed and spank and tell it when to go. But it's not okay for you to take a human and put a collar on them and sit them down and tell them when to go, right? There's a difference because we have dominion over animals. We have dominion over the earth. Why are we privileged? Well, because we're made in the image of God. So, in other words, why does God love mankind so much? Because we're reflections of him. So, in other words, God doesn't love you so much as he loves himself in you, right? He, he, he loves humans because they are in his image. We are a reflection of him, and God loves himself. So God loves us because he loves himself, and we are in his likeness and image. Um, we also know this just through logic. Uh, God is the worthiest object of love, and so why would he not love himself? It's actually sinful to not love God. So God would be imperfect if he didn't love himself. Uh, another reason this makes sense is because in eternity past, if God is love, who is he loving? We, we can speak of God loving us before we were created, um, but it seems like it's kind of, we kind of have a lonely God like sitting in eternity like, I'm, I'm bored, I'm lonely. I've got all this love and no one, to, no one to love. But God has always, there's always been an object of God's love because he's eternal and he loves himself. Uh, and, and the way we understand this is this is why the Trinity is so important. And this is why, to take a step back, it sounds kind of like, like um, you know, arrogant to talk about how God loves himself more than anybody. But let me remind you of two reasons why that's not arrogant. Number one, it's not arrogant because he's worthy of it. In other words, if you loved yourself more than anything, like if I, if I love myself more than all other people more than God, like if I loved myself more than anything, yes, that would be sinful, that would be prideful, that would be arrogant. But why would that be sinful? It's because I'm not worthy of that love. It's not just like loving yourself is inherently wrong, but it's loving yourself in proportional to what you deserve. So God is worthy of infinite love, and so it's not prideful for him to give himself infinite love. It's, it's wrong for you to do that because you're not worthy of infinite love, so you shouldn't make yourself the infinite being. But God is worthy of it, so it's not prideful. But another reason why it's different is because you are not a triune being. When, when, I, when I talk, if I were to come in here and be very openly prideful and say, I love myself more than anything at, at all. That's prideful. That's kind of weird. But when God says that, it's not the same thing because within God, there is a harmony of persons. It's not just one person loving the one person himself. It's three persons in a communication of love together. So it's just not the same thing. And we get this because we are told in scripture that the persons of the Trinity love each other. Just one, there's lots of examples, but just one of them. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in His hands. And if you remember, the term Son is primarily a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. He becomes the Son of Man in His incarnation. He becomes Jesus in His incarnation. He becomes the Christ in the incarnation. But He is the Son or the Word in eternity. So this is telling us that even before Jesus became incarnate, 
The Father loved him, and he loved the Father. I like the way John Gill expresses it. The principal object of the love of God is himself. The three divine persons in the Godhead mutually love each other. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The three persons are in this perfect dance of love and always have been and always will be. And that's what we mean when we talk about how God loves himself. It's the love that the three persons share with each other. So let's talk applications and then we'll open it up. The first application, like what do we do? So God is infinite in love and he loves us and he loves the elect. And okay, what does that mean for my life? Well, the first one, I guess I could have broken this into three points. I kind of cheated. But you should love God, praise God, and worship God. God's love for you should cause you to love him. God's love for you should cause you to praise him, right? We see this, Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did he predestine you? So that you would praise his glorious grace. God's love is meant to draw praise out of you, right? So if you want to show God you love him, just praise him. Just praise him, praise him, praise him. That's what he wants. He wants your praise. Um, there's another, I can't remember if I have it, but even in, there's a, a verse in 1 John 4, maybe I misplaced it because I thought it was supposed to come after this, where we're actually explicitly told because God loves us, we ought to love him and love one another, right? So God's love should make us love him and make us praise and worship him. Another application is that we should love others. Maybe this is the verse. Yeah, this is, I'm sorry, this is what I was thinking of. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God loves you and he, when he communicates with you, he fills his love into you and he expects you to release that love, right? He doesn't just give you a down deposit to, as, he, as Jesus says, to put it under a basket, right? When we receive the love of God, we perfect that love within us by dishing it out and dishing it out abundantly. And so because God loves us, we ought to love one another. So God's love should make you love him, but God's love should also make you love other people. And, and there's a lot of logic to this, right? Because as we said, you did nothing to earn God's love. You didn't earn it. And so if you have that kind of love within you, the love that doesn't have to be earned, then we should give love to other people without earning it, right? The second I say, I'm only going to love you if you earn it, that's no longer divine love because that's not what God's love does. So if we want to perfect the love of God within us, we need to act like God and we need to just love people whether they deserve it or not because that's what God does. So we should love God. We should praise God. We should love others. We should appreciate the Son because as we said, we have a unique and special love that only comes through Jesus. So we should really, really appreciate Jesus more than we ever have. Because it is only in him, right? We just read this in love. He predestined us for adoption. But what does it say? Which he has blessed us in the beloved. This amazing electing love which causes us to praise God. It, it's, it's only in Christ. It's only found in the deposit of Christ. We see in Romans 8. Uh, I skipped this and when we read it, nor anything else in all creation will be separated from what? The love of God, as we said, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, we should really appreciate the Son. And the last thing I have is we should also appreciate the Spirit. Romans 5.5 5 says, because, God, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? So if we go back to here, we've got this love of God within us and perfecting us. How did God get his love inside of us? And Romans 5.5 5 tells us it's through the Spirit. We receive God's love through our union, through the Spirit indwelling in us. If you didn't have the Spirit, you could never offer true love. You could only offer selfish love to people. But you could never offer a true, selfless, divine love if it were not for the Holy Spirit who gives you what you don't have. Divine love is not something you possess in your natural condition. All you can ever give is selfish love. Remember, Jesus references that in Matthew 5. Don't the tax collectors do that too? Don't the Gentiles do that too? There is a kind of love that sinful people who hate God can do, but it's, the, it's not the selfless divine love. The only way you can do that is through the Spirit. And so we should really be thankful for the Holy Spirit who enables us to receive God's love and to 
give God's love. So my conclusion is actually not super long. So um, like I said, I know it's kind of awkward to transition so fast, but do you have any thoughts on, on love, the love of God, anything that we've covered so far up to this point? Finding the attributes of God, which all we can do is use attributes to explain that. And it's almost the same thing here. To bring God's love, all we can do is come up with the attributes. Yeah, Except yeah. That right at the start, really you define it two different ways. Mm-hmm. You have all the actions, which is the major portion of that. But right at the start, basically you're saying love is it integral part of God. It's innate to God. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's not something that changes. It's just there. And, uh, how, you, how you describe that is difficult because there is a part that's not action. It just is. Yeah. Well, so, I, I okay, I'm going to open up a can of worms that I'm not smart enough to close, okay? I, I totally see what you're saying and so far as you're saying it, I, I completely agree. But, there's an attribute of God that we haven't covered in this class because it's, I'm just not smart enough. I don't know it. I need to study more. But theologians, Christian theologians have argued that God is what we call pure act, which means there's nothing passive in God. So everything he does is always an action. He's pure act. So they would say, uh, but I get what you're saying. There's a sense in which you're, you're spot on. I defined love as like, at the beginning was two different, one was just like a state and the other one was action. But what theologians would do is say that state is actually in action. But how they go about explaining it is really complex and I'm just not there yet. So I agree with you so far as what you're saying, but there is a way to understand God's love as always being an act. And that's what the Christian tradition has affirmed for 2,000 years and I just... I can't explain it right now. <laughs> but, but like you said, but you still, you still notice something that I snuck in and is really, really perceptive. Truly, I, I mean that. Where it is, his love is kind of like a disposition and something that can be experienced, right? But it, even if we're not experiencing it, it's still there. So that's what you're saying. It's like a state of being as well as an action. Yeah, it's there even if you don't pick up some action. Exactly, 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 yes, yep. Yep. And, and I would agree. And, and, and the Christian tradition wouldn't disagree with that, but they would, just, they would just say there's a way to philosophically understand the state as being in action. It's different than the action we experience, but it, they would say it is in action. Uh, where this gets really con- confusing is they would also say that um, God is creator. His creation is always in action. And here's where the debate came in. So the... Uh, and and this, is, this will actually lead into something important I'm going to say in my conclusion, that we have only barely scratched the surface of the attributes of God. You think we've gone deep, but we haven't. <laughs> so philosophers have t- talked about, we talk about how God is uh, unchanging, right? He doesn't change. He's immutable. And what certain unbelieving philosophers would throw at the Christians throughout church history to stump them is say, I can, I can actually v- give you a very easy proof that God changes. At one point in time, he was not the creator. There was nothing. And then he created. So he went from being not the creator to the creator. So we have a change in God. And there's actually Thomas Aquinas and other Christian theologians have come up with a brilliant way of explaining how even God's act of creating is is a pure act, pure eternal act, so that we can always affirm him as creator and I think it has to do with his, his will. He, he always had the will. In other words, when he created, he didn't go from, he never went from a state of saying, I don't want to create, to, you know what, actually I do. And then he created. Because his desire to create was eternal, in that sense, he is always the active creator, even though it hadn't been manifested. Again, that's the best I can give you right now. <laughs> that's confusing. I can't go any deeper, but... universe is changing. The planets are moving. Well, God created the change, too. Right. Change is part of this creation. That's right. But we'd say it's not part of him. He doesn't change, but he created a world that changes. All the movement that's still going on is already 
Right, exactly, yeah. Yep. No, <laughs> for me as well, trust me, trust me. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. To me, that is a description of God's love, or it is a, that's not the right word, but evidence, maybe it'd be a better word. Why else would he, if he's self-sufficient, he and among the Trinity, they don't need anything, they're fully self-sufficient among themselves. Why go to the trouble to create such beauty and wonder that they're aware of, they can see it's nothing new to them. So in my little mind I think because he wanted to yeah. he wanted to delight another creature. Yeah, yeah, amen. I, that, 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 that is a, a great way of saying it. Um, right? Even if we take, like, why did God predestine? Why this plan? All the Bible tells us is according to the purpose of his will. There's still a lot unspoken there, but what we do know there is here's the good news. God didn't create because he needed to. Right? God was not compelled. Uh, according to the, the, the forces of fate which told him he had to create. Or, because if he didn't create us, then he would be lonely and sad, right? So the, the Bible is very explicit in telling us that God didn't do all of this because he needed it. He just wanted it. He, he simply willed, he simply desired more reasonable beings to partake in what he has always been partaking of, which is his own glory. He wanted to create creatures to share in this glory that he has been self-sufficiently sharing in his entire existence. So you're absolutely right. It was the, the best we can say is, is, why didn't God make all these beautiful stars? And, and did he need it? Was he lonely without them? No, he just, he just wanted to. He, just, he wanted more objects to bless. He wanted more people to bless. He wanted more uh, glory. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a sheer act of will. It's not a necessity. Even the Greeks, I don't know much about Greek mythology, but I've heard at least some people say, I don't know if they're right or wrong, but this was one of the defections of thought in the Greek concept of their gods, was the Greek philosophers realized there's this interesting relationship between the gods and creatures because the gods are sort of, like what if we all just stopped believing in them? And what if we all just hated the gods? Um, now they're kind of not fulfilling their own purpose. So we, to some degree, have the power to make them sad or to make them lonely or to sort of degradate their purpose. And, and even I one time watched a movie on Greek mythology where, where uh, Hades lost all of his power because no one believed him in anymore. But then he would terrorize people and they would start to believe in him and he would grow in power. And he has this conversation with Zeus where he basically says, like, what's the point of my existence if no one believes in me. I, I sort of lose my power if they... So, so in other words, the gods, the people were dependent upon the gods, but in a very real sense, the gods were kind of dependent upon them. There was this mutual dependency going on. And, uh, and it was the Christians, it was the Pauls who stepped into Athens and said, that's nonsense. God, God is in no shape or form in need of me. Like, if, if we were to ask that question, what if everyone just stopped believing in God and killed themselves? He's fine. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been okay. He'll be okay, right? Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Like, why all those beautiful stars? Because he loves them, you know? I, I know plenty of people. Joseph, for example. I'll think of Joseph. Joseph is an incredible artist. I don't know if you guys know about this, about Joseph. He's, and Joseph has so many paintings and pictures that no one has ever even seen. And, and just think of artists in general. How many, how many paintings and how much art do you think Picasso and all these guys made that no one ended up seeing? Artists just love to just create things sometimes. Right? Why did God make all these beautiful stars? He wanted to. It's awesome. It's glorious. He's an artist. That's what they do. They create beautiful things, right? Um, so we could come up with a lot of good answers, but you're right. The one thing we have to stay away from is that God needed to create or was compelled to create but no, this, this is just a sheer act of his will. 
It's just something he wanted to do. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Seriously, yeah. No, that, that's a really great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I'll, I'll move on, but like I said, you'll have more opportunities to talk about everything. Um, so I just want to give a brief summary. So uh, these last two are what we're going to cover next week. So we haven't technically gotten to them, but by the end of next week, you will have covered 16 attributes of God. And believe it or not, there are more that we could have talked about. That God has existence, that God is a spirit, he doesn't have a physical body, that God is eternal, he's without beginning or end, he's immutable, he does not change, he's omnipresent, there is nowhere where he is not, he's omniscient, which means he knows all things, he's omnipotent, which means he's all powerful, he can do whatever he wants to do, he can accomplish any task, he, is, he has omnibenevolence, which is what we covered today, he is all loving, he is wisdom, he has wisdom, he is wise, uh, and we talked about wisdom as sort of what you do with knowledge. He knows how to use knowledge. He is holy, which means he is 100% essentially contrary to sin. He is undefiled, he is pure, and he cannot be around sin. He is also good. He is patient. He has all authority. He is just. And then next week, we're going to see that he is simple and he is ase. Simplicity and ase is what we're going to end with. So you'll see what those are next week. So this is what you covered in the class. So like I said, not as deep of a dive as we could have, but quite deep. I want us, we began by reading the definition of God. The very first class, we read the definition of God in the Westminster Confession, which is in our church confession. And I want us to read it again. It's, it's long, but I bolded all of their attributes that we've covered. So you can see how we have essentially just basically took two paragraphs of the, of the confession and for about 24 weeks elaborated on it. So this is what the two paragraphs about God say. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Um, there's a lot about, when you do a true study of what we call the doctrine of God, there are essentially two things you look at. You look at the attributes of God and the unity of God. And we didn't look at the unity of God. The unity of God is where you talk about things like the Trinity, how many wills are in God, uh, and eternal generation, a bunch of other really deep stuff. That stuff is just so deep, 
we'll cover it sometime in its own class. So that's why a lot of this stuff at the end we didn't talk. We didn't talk about the Trinity. We didn't talk about some of this other stuff because we were just looking at God's attributes, not his unity. I began by saying what, what sparked me to want to do this was I asked Bill. Uh, I had an old DVD that I, I remembered liking a lot of Steve Lawson doing the attributes of God, and we did it in Sunday school. And I just, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, which is why I asked Bill to do it. But then after I saw it the second time, I just, I wasn't super pleased with it. He didn't say anything false, like it's not, it wasn't bad. But I just really felt like we didn't really get into some of the, the details I was hoping to get into. I just felt like it was very, very shallow, tip of the iceberg stuff. So I wanted to do this class so that we could get a little deeper. And I think we accomplished that. But I want to be clear that we did not go nearly as deep as you could go. Uh, you'd probably need to take some professional courses if you wanted to really exhaust the subject. Um, there's, there's, there's a certain depth where even I would sit in, and learn with you. It, it can just be so deep and beautiful and complex. So please don't feel like we've learned everything that there is to know about God. <laughs> we didn't. Um, but I think that we were able to sort of push beneath the surface a little bit and learn some good things. And so I just wanted to end with, there was one thing that struck out to me the most during all of the attributes of God. And to me, it was the devotional nature of the attributes of God. And here's what I mean by that. Because of this graphic here, I was, I was primarily concerned with our intellect going into this class. I just, I just felt like we didn't learn enough in the Sunday school course. And so I was expecting this class to be really intellectually challenging. And that's what really, I was like, I cannot wait to give them this material. It's going to blow their minds. We're going to learn some amazing things. And I think to some degree we did that. But what surprised me was how much in my preparation the class didn't so much move my mind as my heart. It, it was just incredible the way every single week as I studied and prepared for the class, by just studying God, I just, I had more hope during my weeks. I slept better at night. I had more confidence about my life and about the future. I had more, I mean, it just, learning about God literally changed my heart. And the class ended up being far more about my heart than it was about my mind. And I was just amazed by that. I just, I, I just fell more in love with God and, and I just left feeling so encouraged and hopeful and trusting more and more. And so that was what surprised me more, is I thought this was going to be a, a lot of intellectual rigor, but it ended up more so being emotional rigor. It challenged me spiritually and emotionally, and it, and it changed me spiritually and emotionally far more than it changed my thoughts and my ideas. Um, so, and, and I mean this as a good thing, not a bad thing. The Lord really surprised me. So I, I was happy with the series. You know, obviously, it could have been, I could have done things better. We could have, there's always stuff to improve upon, but... Um, my one takeaway was this was so much less about my thoughts of God and ended up being so much more about my, my feelings toward God. It just, man, it just really changed my perspective on, on my week. Every single week, no matter what I learned, whether we were studying his justice or his holiness or his uh, infin infinitude, no matter what we were, there was just something about the attribute that just encouraged me and lifted my spirits and, and gave me hope about life and about the future and made me glad to be a Christian.